from beautiful downtown Milheim in the smack dab center of the Keystone State, this is Lou Bryson with Seen Through a Glass, the podcast that's mostly about drinking in central Pennsylvania. Welcome to episode eight, Milheim, home at last. That's right, I'm doing an episode on the town that's in the smack dab center of the Keystone State, my town, Milheim. I had planned to wait on doing this episode for a while longer, especially after just doing Williamsport. But the calendars aligned, and I was able to get Elk Creek Cafe co-founder Tim Bowser and founding brewer Tim Yarrington to sit down for an interview. Rather than let it get out of date, we did the rest of the town, and added my idiosyncratic process of making chili to round out the episode. As I've alluded already, my wife and I sold our house in Bucks County and settled in Milheim a little over a year ago. We'd bought our place in Milheim, the old Martin house, right on Main Street in August of 2016. It needed a lot of work, and it took a while to get that lined up and done. During those years, we treated it as a vacation home, busting out a box as soon as we could on Friday nights, scorching up the turnpike to get some front porch time before it got dark, relaxing or working on the house on Saturday, and then reluctantly shutting the house down Sunday afternoon and going back to work. That gave us a chance to get to know the area better. And that confirmed our decision to settle here. Milheim has a lot going on for a town of only 900 people. There's Elk Creek Cafe, the brew pub that got our attention in the first place. Penns Valley Meat Market is a real village butcher shop. Pisano's Winery offers wines, cocktails, draft beer, and wine slushies by the mill race. The Milheim Hotel's draft beer selection has more local taps than a lot of self-proclaimed craft beer bars. But that's only the beginning. Two of Pennsylvania's wilder state parks, Poe Valley and Poe Patty, are just south of town. The trout fishing on Penns Creek is some of the finest in Pennsylvania, focused on the Green Drake Hatch in late May and June. There are beautiful vistas and overlooks in the parks and state game lands, a variety of hiking trails, a swimming lake in Poe Valley Park, and miles of roads through woods and mountain laurel thickets. Milheim's right in the middle of it. And that's not even the best part. The people. We made friends fast, and the variety of people here is fantastic. Farmers, entrepreneurs, musicians, mechanics, academics, athletes, and artisans. I hear there's even a whiskey writer in town now. But before we get started on that... Here's what I'm drinking today. Today I have Pisano Winery's Nostalgic Hardware Nebbiolo. This is what I get almost every time at Pisano's. I picked it at random our first time in. I wasn't familiar with Nebbiolo, but I found I liked the wine. I got interested, and I thought you might be too, so I checked a favorite source, Madeline Puckett's Wine Folly website. Turns out the grape is quite familiar, I just didn't know it by that name. I'll quote from the site. Hailing from northern Italy's Piedmont region, Nebbiolo is known for producing a powerful, full-bodied, and mercilessly tannic wine, all while looking as pale as Pinot Noir. Most famously, it's the grape that goes into Barolo and Barbaresco, two of the world's most revered and more expensive wines. Nebbiolo is also in a number of more affordable, entry-level wines from Italy and beyond. Well, I'll vouch for the mercilessly tannic, but the fruit's there too and it makes for a notable glass. Let's have a whiff. Mmm, so there's some light cherry, 
some tart blackberry notes. Let's sip this. The tannins are there. Uh, there's some acidity, but there's fruit too. Wow, the tannin really does come in, kind of grabs you by the back of the tongue. But it's not, you know, it's not teeth squeaking astringent. Mm. Yeah, this is what I like about this wine. It really rewards a second and third sip because it starts to, I don't know, it starts to get your mouth used to it. And as you take that next sip, your mouth is saying, yes, I remember this. Let's have more of it. Whereas in the first couple of sips, your mouth is just like, whoa, what the hell is this? But then, I don't know, it kind of coats and uh, everything becomes more normal and really pretty delicious. That's uh, nostalgic hardware from Pisano's Winery, the Nebbiolo. I love that stuff. Now, before we get to Milheim proper, I'm going to do another home cooking segment. My son Tom and his partner Sade came to visit this past weekend, and one thing he and I love to do is cook and eat chili. I have a slightly eccentric approach to chili, and I wanted to share it with you. I'll warn you, my chili has beans and some tomatoes. It's just how it is. As is usually the case in these segments, I also use as many local ingredients as I can. But mostly, for me, chili's a chance to clean out the freezer. We have a full-size upright freezer, and I buy meat on sale. Sometimes, it gets ahead of me, and I get out the stuff that's over six months old, I buy four or five pounds of fresh ground beef, and make chili. This might explain why I never make a small batch. I have a 20-quart kettle, by the time the chili's ready, it's almost full which is how this batch wound up with six chicken thighs, a piece of top round, some chorizo, three links of sweet Italian sausage from Burkholder's Market, which makes a surprisingly good Italian <laughs> sausage, some smoked sausage and country ribs from Penns Valley Meat Market, and about a pound of pulled pork I smoked last summer. Before Tom woke up, I mixed up my rub from equal parts ancho chili powder, smoked paprika, and two Penzi spice blends, their medium chili powder, and Northwood's Fire, a paprika-heavy blend with added chipotle and cayenne. I put that all over the chicken, the beef, and the country ribs, and threw them on the grill for a good sear. Meanwhile, I sliced up the smoked sausage, cooked the Italian sausage in a skillet, and threw the chorizo in just long enough to heat it and brown it. When it was all done, I piled it on a plate and put it in the freezer to cool while I browned the ground beef. I tossed that in the big pot with just enough oil to keep it from sticking, chopped a large onion, and threw that in as well. Then I dusted it pretty heavy with that same mix of spices that I used on the grill, plus a good dose of cumin, a light shot of cayenne, a whole lot of powdered chipotle and ancho pepper, red pepper flakes, ground black pepper, and about a tablespoon and a half of dried minced onion. I stirred that all into the browning meat. The smell must have woken Tom up, and when he came down, I handed him a cup of coffee put him to work chopping up the cooled-off meat and sausage. More stirring the beef and onion mix, and when the meat was cut, we dumped it all in, with all the juices. I stirred it up and turned up the heat. The idea is to sweat off the fat and boil off the water. I let it go for ten minutes, stirring it maybe twice while I opened cans. I opened two cans of tomato paste, two cans of Rotel Original, a can of green chilies, and three 14-ounce cans of Fermano's diced tomatoes canned over in Northumberland County, and then a number 10 can of light red kidney beans, a big can of dark red kidneys, 
and 14-ounce cans of black beans, great northern beans, butter beans, and cannellini. Most of the beans were Hanover, a good Pennsylvania brand, and a local employer. I poured the beans into a big colander and rinsed them well, all but the great northerns. I kept the liquid from that one can as a thickener. The meat was starting to smoke a bit. It was time to go to work. I shoved all the meat to one side as much as possible, then carefully lifted that side of the pot and set it up on a porcelain spoon rest, with the rest of the pot still over the burner. With the big burner on high, the fattened stuff started to collect on the low side of the pot. I sucked it out with a metal basting bulb. I used to use a plastic one, but the tip melted. And I put the hot juice in a ramekin. When I got it all, I took the pot down off the spoon rest, stirred it well, and set it on the heat again. After a couple of minutes, I shoved the meat over again, propped it up, and sucked out about a third of what I'd pulled out the first time. The ramekin, almost full, went in the freezer. The pot went back on the stovetop. After clearing a space in the middle of the meat, the two cans of tomato paste went in there. I let them get hot and brown a little, and then stirred them well into the meat. I mixed in the rotel and the tomatoes, let that get hot, and then dumped in all the beans, mixing it up well. And then I decided to boost the smoke from the sausage and pulled pork with a cup of smoked Bach beer. It smelled awesome. I turned the heat back to medium, covered the pot, and let it go for 20 minutes. When I checked it, dark red juice was bubbling up in the middle, thick and slow like lava. I stirred it and gave it five more minutes. More bubbles. Time to taste. Good flavor, but not enough. I added more spices, going heavy on the ancho pepper, cumin, chipotle, and smoked paprika. Tom and I liked it, but we thought it could use a bit more heat. I was going to add a can of chipotles and adobo sauce, but instead, on a whim, and because I didn't really feel like getting the immersion blender out, I stirred in two tablespoons of oil off the top of a jar of Trader Joe's chili onion crisp. Perfect. We let it simmer for an hour, and it was done. We served it with sour cream, shredded cheese, hot sauce, and fresh baked cornbread. It went down wonderfully, and we sent Tom home with two half-gallon freezer containers full. It's not Texas chili, not even close. It's not Skyline chili, it's not the sweet chili you find all too often in Pennsylvania diners. It's my chili, what we jokingly call spicy beef and bean stew. And as you can probably guess, every batch is different. That's how we do it in Milheim, at least in my little bit of Milheim. Now, how about that interview? Tim Bowser and Tim Yarrington are the reason Kathy and I live in Milheim. We've become good friends, and the beer, the food, the absolute vibe at Elk Creek is what led us to Main Street of this amazing little town. No apologies for the sound this time. We recorded at Elk Creek, and you're going to hear some traffic noise and even some Amish horses clip-clopping by. Consider it Milheim flavor. Hey, I'm at Elk Creek in Milheim. Uh, sorry, Elk Creek Cafe and Ale Works in Milheim. Uh, and I'm here with co-founder Tim Bowser. Howdy. That's Tim Bowser. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I told you, Phil. Uh, yeah, I know. That's <laughs> a good thing we have some coffee. Uh, and uh, director of brewing operations, I think, is what I was told your title I'll, is these days. I'll take that. That's yeah. Tim Yarrington. Yep. Founding brewer. Founding brewer. Both of whom I've known for a pretty damn long time. Long I've time. known you guys like 15 years. Yeah. And of course, I live here in town. So I think I've known you longer than that, all the way back to New Jersey. 
Yeah, and so that's um, like twenty Great Valley. No, what the hell was uh, that? Long Valley Long Pub and Valley. Brewery. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that's twenty. I actually just saw. There's a Kathy and I have a picture of us by the fireplace years I, back. Uh huh. So yeah. However long that is. Yeah. And you won you won medals there, didn't you? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, a gold and two bronze. Great American uh, Beer Ninety nine and two thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll get on with the uh, the actual interview here instead of this reminiscing. There are two questions I, I want to ask more than anything, and I'll, I'll get to the first one right away. Why Melheim? Uh, why on earth did you think you could run a brew pub in a farm town of 900 people 20 miles away from a town of 40,000 that already had a brewery? Insanity. <laughs> Penns Valley is pretty special. It's a very special place. I grew up in rural PA. I worked a lot in rural PA and I kind of literally just stumbled into this valley uh, having come back to the area I went to Penn State came back and worked the Department of Ag at Penn State when I discovered the wonders of Penn's Valley and uh, could we actually I didn't put that in my thing but you know I live here so I don't think about it much can you explain what Penn's Valley is because I try to explain it to people and I fall short I mean geophysically it's basically the school district but you could think of it as route 45 and 192 from woodward to i would say bullsburg some would say center hall but basically those two valleys and the ridges that bound them and it's kind of special i think i mean it's it's the reason my wife and i retired here what's i just found there to be a different sensibility here than any other rural area that i had experienced i mean the Amish moved in in the late 60s. The Backton Landers and hippies moved in in the early 70s. And I got here in the mid-80s. And I just, it just felt like, and then there's people who have been milking cows here for 500 years. <laughs> and it seemed like, you know, there was this ethos of shoot straight, carry your own weight, we'll get along. We don't have to agree on everything. And I just feel like there's been that kind of neighborliness, you know, in the almost 40 years I've been here. Not that it's perfect, but it's, got more perfect elements than a lot of places these days and Milheim is the center of Penns Valley it was the center of all the commerce when agriculture ruled and um, I just I couldn't have imagined doing this anywhere else in rural PA not even in Center County I don't think there was another time wouldn't have worked I mean we started coming here as I said years ago there's just something about the place, about the people that are here. I don't know who these people are. I don't know where they're coming from. I mean, obviously, largely from a fairly local area, but it's not all that. No, we see a lot of people from State College and points in between, less from Union County, which is Mifflinburg and Lewisburg, but definitely some. It's a haul. It's a little bit of a commitment. It's That's been one of the biggest challenges we've faced since day one, and, and things look a lot differently today than they did then. Oh, yeah. Uh, nobody had a brewery in a town like this in PA and now they're everywhere. And we also reach beyond uh, the, the regional draw in that this is a destination location for a lot of sports people, uh, fly fishermen and outdoors people, bike, uh, trail bikers oh, right. and things like that. And then also you have the Penn State football crowd that come in from all over the place. So it's pr- pretty unique that a place this far out away can still be known beyond our you know particular area of you know uh you know region uh so that's pretty cool yeah i mean i I say this all the time and i'm going to talk about it later in the podcast just on my own but 
I've always said, I mean, Milheim particularly punches above its weight. Mm-hmm. I just, it amazes us almost on a daily basis what we can find in a, a town of 900 people. That's true. And that, all that said, there's no question in my mind that we would not have survived had we not been fortunate enough to have Tim Arrington sign up from day one. I mean, if we just started with, we had a young guy ready to do it, but he had no experience. I just don't think this location wouldn't have gotten us many second chances. So we were very fortunate Ooh, yeah. to That's a good point. have talked him into leaving Jersey and coming here. I remember you saying to me, I, I met you at Seals Grove at the right. brew pub. And uh, I, I still remember one thing you said to me that night, um, which was, what, at least a year before you opened here. Yeah, almost. Actually, it was exactly a year because it was on the solstice that you were there. Your book had just, another edition of your yeah, book had just come out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, you said to me, because I, I asked you where Milheim was, and you said, you know where they say here in the, in the middle of nowhere? It's, it's not quite there, but you can see it from there. <laughs> I still remember that. So people come here, I mean, these people, and some of them, I mean, I remember people run into people here during a show who had driven up from Pittsburgh to see a band. People come here for for three things. They come for the beer, they come for the locally sourced food, and they come for the live music. First and foremost, then, is it a brewery or a restaurant or a live music venue? I mean, is there a more important part? I I would say no. I'd say we need to, when you're in a location like this, and one of the things that I thought about before I took this position, you know, I, I came here as a consultant, not intending to stay, you know. And let's I, just, I mean, real quick, I mean, you were at Long Valley in New Jersey. You were at Times Square in New York. Right. And after Times Square, I was just freelance consultant helping, yeah. you know, trying to specialize in the area that I'm uniquely qualified for, which is the combination of the brewing knowledge and construction, because I've done a lot of construction in my life. And that's the part I really enjoy, getting people, uh, getting breweries built within their budget and within the scope of their, their plan. This place had its uh, had a very unique plan and, and right. location, and uh, I found it to be a challenging but um, sort of exciting proposition to see if we couldn't put a brewery in here that could be highly functional and yet make high-quality beer efficiently on a budget. Tim was really astute at locating a lot of used equipment, and that helped, helped me a lot, but also challenged me to try to fit it all in. Uh, the, the thing would be that... Um, when you look at a place like this, a location of this nature, you have to fire on all cylinders. You have to have from the moment the customer steps in the door to the service, to the, to the food, to the music, to the atmosphere, to the lighting, to, the, to the, the entire thing has to work. So the beer, the food, the music, it all has to be functioning on a high level. And when Elk Creek is at its best, that's what we do better than anybody. And his assessment of, um, of this place... Uh was somewhat different the first time he pulled up to the red light <laughs> in Milheim coming from New Jersey. I was, he claimed he almost turned around and left because we must be must have been nuts. I got to admit, the first time we came here, I remember we rolled in over the mountain from Williamsport, and it was a bright, sunny Sunday afternoon. There was no one in town. There, were, there was no one on the sidewalks. I honestly was waiting for tumbleweeds. I just... I don't know. Yeah, the feeling was sort of pity i felt sorry for the poor individual that was <laughs> stepping into this endeavor and i wasn't exactly else, sure 
I wasn't exactly sure how to break it to them that this might not be the best idea. And then eventually I came around to it and saw the vision and, and it appealed to me to such an extent that I decided to stay and I've been here for 15 years now. Yeah. 16 if you count the build out. So that kind of brings me to that second question that I just can't wait any longer. Uh, the beer list. The beer list is a fossil. I, I, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. Well, well I'm a fossil. Okay. <laughs> and you moved here because of the beer list. <laughs> That's true. I guess that makes me a fossil too. I mean, we've got pale ale, copper ale, which I don't remember the last time I saw that anywhere else. Uh, regularly brown ale, a porter, and an IPA that is defiantly not hazy or West Coast. And that's the regulars. Those are the ones that are on all the time. Pretty much since day one. Yeah, this is a craft beer list from like 20 years ago. How, how does that work and why does it work? Sheer stubbornness and determination. <laughs> because, you know, again, I am a fossil. I got going in 1994. You know, I started brewing in 95 and it wasn't at the front front end of the things, but it was pretty pretty front end for this. Yeah. And I'd never lost my, my interest and enthusiasm and respect for how this industry started and it's and its admiration for craft craft being typically uh an extension of some nostalgia for for the old ways of doing things that we had gotten away from when when uh big money and big commerce uh took over the brewing industry and and what it became about selling as much cheap you know, material beer, you know, cheap ingredients, high volume, make as much money on the cheapest stuff that you can do through marketing. Unfortunately, I've seen our industry turn in that direction in some, some segments, and I just refuse. <laughs> uh, okay. and, and what I would say to, you know, Tim or in Half Said, because we, we have, we've had this conversation. I'm sure. In various forms, various times is that if that's if these are the things you want to do or if that's the direction you want to go sometimes i'm not i'm not the brewer for you and i'd be happy to retire if that's what i have to do uh so that's how stubborn i can be on this topic because <laughs> related to that and back to the previous question my brother moved to washington state in the mid 90s and i was out there quite frequently for a bunch of years and we traveled all over the the region going to brew pubs. So A, I saw some examples that in not as rural as Milheim, but rural, yeah. they could ex exist. And those are the beers I remember drinking in those pubs that I have very fond feelings and memories of, you know, those were the beers. So it wasn't a, a leap when certainly when we opened, it's, yeah, we've had conversations over the years about the world has changed yeah. quite a bit since we opened our doors. Although I think things, you know, maybe are coming around. I, I agree. And that, that I'm very into optimistic in that area. And I always, that's one of the things you and I've talked about, Tim, um, multiple times that I feel like I've been around long enough to see this pendulum swing. Yeah. You know, I've seen it swing this way and that, you know. Um, this is a new uh, direction of the pendulum. It, you know, I never saw some of the things that we're seeing now. Um, I never thought I would. Peanut but, butter sandwiches? <laughs> whatever. You, you said it. I did not. Um, but I really felt like the one thing that's, that, you know, the reason why beer is still enjoyed and celebrated and appreciated by a vast number of people around the globe to this day, is because of the things we've always kept in mind as brewers, 
which are consistency, quality, balance, um, flavor, satisfaction, but balance being the main thing. Yeah. Uh, keep, keeping a certain, um, keeping that dance between bitterness and maltiness and hoppiness and fruitiness and, you know, all, all these things that we get to play with, um, with the really simple palette of raw materials that we work with for, you know, basically, unless you're going into the breakfast cereal realm, we can do a lot of things with that. And if we hit those notes right, the human palate will respond in a positive way. And I I just think that if we stay steadfast to that and breweries that I admire, like Trogues and Sierra Nevada and guys that have been around a long time and you look at their products, uh, Victory, I can name, you know, you look at their staple products, they keep that in mind. And that's why their beers sell at the volume that they do. Sure, we can do we can do sort of the niche things and, and the exciting things. And innovation is fun. And innovation is something not to be um, derided. You know, I don't, I don't find that it's something I tell my students all the time, you know, my, my brewing students. I'm not anti-innovation. I just want innovation with intelligence and thoughtfulness. Uh, purpose and if you can innovate and create a product that's exciting balanced and flavorful i can celebrate it well that, uh, i wanted to because i wanted to ask about the other side of the beer list here as well um i mean the special beers the ones that are on the right side of the of the blackboard uh black ale kolsch pilsner uh some more modern ipas stouts an occasional belgian occasional barrel aged. what determines what gets made or who determines that is that a, a team effort or, or is that you proposing and you saying no? Is that <laughs> There's been some of that. It's, it's mostly coming out of the brewery. For the most part. Oh, okay. Well, we I'd think say. about season. Yeah. We think about what, what, we, what we're feeling. Like, again, I, I don't know. I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm unusual in this regard, but I have to feel, uh, I have to be excited about the beer I'm making. A trend outside of this brewery doesn't excite me. Uh, if the story of the beer and the product excites me, then I can brew it, you know, then I can brew it well. And I, I don't want to make anything um, that doesn't hit the mark. So if, I, if I'm not feeling it or I'm not excited about it in the moment, I don't feel like I'm going to hit the mark, you know what I mean? So it takes a, um, it takes a certain inspiration. A long time ago, somebody asked me what was the hardest part about my job, and I said, waiting for the inspiration to do it. Mm. Like... like I need to be inspired by something. I have to be provoked by something. And, you know, we did a hazy because eventually I was provoked <laughs> to, to, to the degree that I said, okay, I'm going to do one just to show, you know, it's not because we don't know how. <laughs> it's because I choose not to. And so that was, you know, provocation. So that's Tim's job to, okay. provoke, to provoke me to do things. And I didn't provoke him on a hazy, but he also took it to the scientific extreme forever to get made and then it became the fastest selling beer we'd ever put on tap because it was well made it was maybe the best i'm not that verse but it was probably the best hazy i've tasted yeah so we did that and And then we we didn't do it again we haven't done it again (laughs) there's lots lots of people doing it so that's the other side i wanted to ask what determines what doesn't get made because i mean there have been very few sour beers i can't remember any fruit beers or wheat beers or, or beers loaded with stuff like donuts or Lucky Charms. And I get that last one. I'm just, have you ever made a Hefeweizen? Does that yeast piss you off? Or No, no. I just feel, again, there's that inspiration thing. Um, yeah, the truck's in Milheim. I know. <laughs> yep. good, old, good old Milheim. Yep. Crick Road. Uh, 
Well, that's the narrows, I guess. Again, that inspiration thing. I, I, I really do enjoy wheat beer. I, again, don't want to, um, to insult the tradition of any beer. So until I feel like I really know what I'm about in that realm, I don't want to make the beer because I, I feel like it would be insulting to the people that have come before me that make it so well and my peers that make it well, so well. I've also heard from, from brewers who do make it regularly that that's the only way to do it. Right. With half a bite, so make it regularly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so otherwise the yeast doesn't work right. Again, yeah, all that. So those challenges, and, and I still feel like one of the things we do well here as an organization beyond the brewery is not be all things to all people. I don't feel compelled to be the Applebee's of brewers. Um, I don't need to have a menu that is, you know, 16 pages long of all the beers that I've made, many of which would be mediocre if that was the case. So I would rather make fewer beers and make them with excellence than make a whole bunch of beers and hit some out of the park and and some beef. Ah, it's, it was good. So-so. Yeah. I don't want to make good so-so beer. I want to make excellent beer so i try to hold myself to that standard i hold my brewers to that standard and uh really strive for for excellence in everything we do and if i feel like i can't give it that effort i want to i want to go to germany and study i want to go to germany and study wheat beers i would want to go to belgium and study belgian beers before before i brewed them um i know that i could just buy some belgian yeast and throw it in there and it'll probably turn out pretty good yeah uh, but i want it to turn out excellent you know so okay which is a nice segue for the food, I think. You, you've always had an emphasis on fresh and local. And it's, it, I mean, I can see from the list of places where you get it and the notations on the menu that it's not lip service. It's, it's actual. Why is that important to you? How do you make those connections? And what's the benefit to the supplier and the customer? We've always been about, I mean, we bought myself and a some other partners bought this building in 99 with the intention of doing a brew pub. Thank God we were too busy in the rest of our lives to get it going then because, as you all know, things went boom. And by the time we got to it, I had been working for almost 20 years in the realm of sustainable agriculture and local economy. And I guess I got off track, but part of the reason that my current partners in the building, you know, that built out the, the brewery, local economy was a very much, community was very much our, our vision and our goal. We wanted to do things to support the local economy, and Main Street Milline was looking pretty rough at that point. You know, the big boxes had sucked what was left out of the, you know, the agricultural economy. And I knew that it was possible. I used to grow for market myself, and you, you know, you just had to be knocking on doors and finding farmers and keeping that money to the greatest extent possible in the in the community. The farmers benefit from a better price. We get a higher quality. We've had two or three chefs that just can't believe the the quality of the ingredients they get to work with. And I think that helps the creativity, which helps the menu, which is also, you know, it's as a, without which, the beer is without which there is none, but the food was bringing people here from day one too. And that, and like you said, I mean, it helps the farmer as well. Yes. Yeah. Because they get the direct buy. Right. They get a better price and they can sell things that other people might not be interested in buying. But Is there any, 
and I'm going way off here. I don't even know if we'll keep this in, but <laughs> some breweries let the brewers make beers that just that they want to make, whether they you know, and then they try to sell them. Is there any of that? I mean, just to keep the brewers happy. Is there any of that with the farmer that the farmer wants to try new shit? I think it's more of a conversation, a different, a little bit different conversation because they have to make decisions about what they're going to plant Is or it gonna work animals here? that they're going to bring in, you know, in the beginning of the year. And then they're kind of, there's, you know, brewery, a, a beer is a shorter time frame yeah. in terms of making it. And if it doesn't work out quite, move on to the next one where a growing season is, you're pretty much locked in. So yeah, it's ideally, year. and we used to do more of this. Chefs would go sit in the living room with farmers and talk about, here's what I'd like to have. Can you do it? You know, and come to terms that way. But since then, farmers have got more what I like to call retail ready, and they, they're aware of the trends oh. more, and they're growing stuff. So we still have those conversations, but it's not as critical as it used to be. Uh, you've had a few chefs, as you mentioned. Um, Current guy, uh, Daniel Ketchall, is doing a great job. Um, I recently interviewed him on the show. He was down at the uh, farm show. Uh, you used to joke about the nouveau Dutchy cuisine. Um, what What is the guiding influence here? Is it uh, run by the chef's choice or guided by the availability of ingredients? Pretty much both of those things. I mean, we... You know, we've never been 100%. You can't be in this environment uh, 100% local product, but to the highest degree possible. And as I said earlier, I think the, the level, the quality of the ingredients that we're able to get from proteins to the lettuce inspires different dishes. And, um, I, you know, it is pretty much a chef's call. The only thing I ever insisted on from day one was having the best French fries in the county, to my detriment. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, but they are awful damn good. <laughs> so that's the the beer, the food, the music. Uh, COVID really put a hurt, well, on everybody, on live music in general. Um, although you you did make the pivot to Creekside, the outdoor venue, which is the fire department, is it? Well, a great testament to community, not just us, but us in this community was um, when, you know, things got shut down hard in May of 2020, the fire company that we'd had a pretty good relationship with. We'd done an Oktoberfest fundraiser for them, I don't know, for eight years at that point, came to us and said, hey, if you need to open up outside all summer, do it. And, and it's, I mean, it's their land. That's what we're... Yes. Yeah. The, the fire right. company grounds. And I, I kind of don't know if we'd still be here. Yeah. You know, if we'd have made it through 2020, because these doors were closed, we didn't really have any other options the community responded they loved it being outside people were still trying to stay you know apart yeah and uh we had a modest stage the first year and managed to get a, a more professional one the second year but yeah that was a huge pivot are, are things coming back to normal now is there a, a new normal in terms of music yeah I don't know. We've had a couple of full houses in here recently. Done. It seems like there's a lot of people that are <laughs> ready to stand it. shoulder to shoulder again, and there are people who aren't. I know that those are fewer than there used to be, but I, I don't really know what the new normal is. Bands are getting out there. I'm getting hit harder now maybe than ever, you know, when people want to come oh, back Oh, people and looking play. for, okay. Yeah. And they're touring. I mean, they took a 
Breaking Bands took a big hit financially for yeah. a couple of years. So. Are there? I mean, did they did, did a lot of people fold? Did people get out of it, or are they just reorganizing? Or I can't. I don't know. I'm not seeing that per se. Okay. Across the segment that I look at, but I'm, yeah, there's definitely been some of that. Yeah. I mean, it was a pretty rough two years for touring bands. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Another part of that, well, another aspect of that uh, music scene here at Elk Creek is a, an impressively deep bench for local music. Getting, you've provided a, a showcase for them. Can you talk about that? Well, part of, uh, I mean, <clears throat> in the years between when we bought the building and I realized I was not going to be a brewer, part of the rec- recognition was what we really need here is a community gathering space. And of course, we're going to have good beer and we're going to have good food because that's those are crucial elements to a healthy community gathering space. But my current partners and I were very much into music. We traveled to Philly and Pittsburgh and New York constantly to see music and we were getting sick of it. Um, the travel. The travel. Not the music. Yeah, yeah right. okay. So we kind of set that bar high. We put in acoustic treatment. We Before we even bought a PA, we bought a pretty good high-end PA. We really wanted to do it right. I mean, the deep bench of local music is here, and we've encouraged that, you know, as much as we could. But I think, you know, we've also managed to attract a lot of talent from around the country. You know, if we can just get them here once, they're coming back. And the mix has been, it's been interesting and challenging to keep that mix and make it work for everybody. But we try to, you know, right now it's probably more weighted towards local just because COVID is still with us. And the touring acts, I feel like I don't, you know, there's only a certain amount of guarantee I can make. We got, you know, we closed, we had to cancel a couple of shows in the last six months. I think that may have abated, but I didn't see that coming at the time either. So, yeah. Fortunately, with the bench is deep for the local music. So um, to wrap things up, both of you, and you can decide who's going to go first. Where, where do we go from here? What's what's I mean, what's down the pipeline? And you can be as narrow focus or broad as you want. Whew. Um, I wish I knew. <laughs> uh, things are weird out there, uh, and we're. I think what we're doing is kind of waiting until whatever is normal exposes itself because I still think we're in a, I I would like to think we're in a a transition. So it's very hard to say what's new. Um, Never. I was always, when I got into this game, I got into it for, uh, for me personally, the interpersonal connection. So I've been very uh, specific about my choices as to where I work, because I always wanted to have direct contact with my consumers and not be removed in a production facility and not have that sort of immersive experience and the ability to talk to my customers uh, and get that immediate feedback and, and, and that social connection and feel like I'm, you know, they're connected to me and I'm connected to them. And so I've always been sort of... Um, Draft-centric, shall we say. Uh, I I really believe that beer is best experienced and always has been in a social environment, in a bar, in a tavern, uh, with peers and friends and people you don't know, strangers and all that. And that's always been a a leading thing for me. And so I've uh, stayed out of the packaging thing. But COVID, for the very first time, had me thinking that uh, maybe for the survival of the business and our ability to get through this period that uh, we should perhaps think about 
finding a way to work packaging into the Elk Creek's model. So that's been in discussion and continues to be to some degree or another. So that's one thing I can say. And then just doing anything we can to uh, remind people that we're here and that we're still uh, doing the things we've always done and we're doing them uh, as well, if not better. And that uh, if they come back, we'll be around for another 15 years, whatever that takes. Other Tim? I'd sign on to that plan. (laughs) um, I'll be honest. I just don't know um, either. It's kind of hard right now. It kind of sucked, even though things look like they're getting back to where they were. I don't know what normal is anymore either. But it was a kick. And I'm not sure I'm all the way back myself in terms of figuring out what what's the direction. What what are people going to be looking for? What do we need to be doing? I mean, we are very community centric. We've always been. I mean, convivial was in our business. Really? And just like Tim said, this is a gathering place for people to get together from all corners and parts, have conversations, get along and have a good beer. That's what we do best. And it seems that people are warming back up to that. Hopefully that continues in, in that direction and, and we can say normal or whatever that means at some point. I don't know if we're quite there yet. Yeah, I don't think we're quite there yet, but getting closer. I hope. We are. I hope. All right. Um, that's all I got. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, I will say it was a lot of pressure when you told me you were going to move within walking distance of the, <laughs> the pub, but I, I think we're doing all right. <laughs> I think we both are. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. That's the Melheim Groove. A little bit of farm, a little bit of drink, a little bit of music seasoned with a lot of independence which was really appealing to Kathy and I when we started thinking about our exit strategy from Bucks County. Elk Creek Cafe was the first thing that interested us, but then I stopped at Penn's Valley Meat Market and got a taste of that smoked sausage. We stopped at Burkholder's and were frankly amazed by the range of products in this independent grocery store. Across the parking lot from Burkholder's was Weaver's Store, a kind of Mennonite department store that has everything from shoes and clothing to crossbows and fishing gear to pressure cookers, embroidery floss, and a nice selection of kids' toys and barbecue equipment and supplies. There's a great old-time hardware store, Hosterman & Stover, that's been open since 1854, and an art gallery, The Green Drake, that has local artists and artisans displaying. They have my books, too. I'll tell you what. Friday afternoon, before Tom and Sade got here, I took a short walk around town. Come along with me. It really is short. These five stops will take less than 10 minutes of walking, and most of that is walking down the hill from my house and back. Let's start with the post office. I have to pick up my mail. The post office is at the center of town, at the crossroads of Route 45, which runs from Lewisburg to State College, and Route 445, which runs north through the Milheim Narrows and then over the ridge to Nittany and Lamar. The stoplight here is the only one in the 41 miles of Route 45 between Mifflinburg and Center Hall. I mean, you kind of have to stop at Milheim. The post office obviously isn't an attraction, but it does sit beside the Green Drake. This building is where Hosterman and Stover Hardware was originally before they moved to the west edge of town in 1993. You'll find original paintings at the Green Drake, locally crafted jewelry and pottery, I got a beautiful blue-glazed mug with a dragonfly motif here that's my favorite summertime beer vessel. 
And there's often coffee and cakes available here as well. A nice little touch. Head south on Penn Street and you'll immediately see the banners for Pisano's Winery, just by the mill race that still flows through town. If the weather's warm, you can grab one of the tables on the porch or under the shady trees by the race. You'll have to share space with our friendly Milheim ducks. There's often live music as well. But today it was kind of gray, kind of windy, with a bit of snow spitting. And you have to go in to get your drinks anyway. <laughs> it is drinks, because thanks to Pennsylvania's surprisingly progressive licensing for booze producers, if you make wine or beer or spirits or cider here, your license allows you to sell other Pennsylvania-made drinks as well. So in addition to Pisano's wide range of house-made wines, you can also get cocktails like the Milheim Mule, beer in cans and bottles, and a couple taps of draft. They were running Weak in the Knees Blonde from Lindgren Craft Brewery in Duncannon and Rothrock Stout from Juniata Brewing in Huntingdon. If you like fun stuff, you might want to try the Fruity Wine Slushies. They're usually two flavors on offer. But we came for the wine, right? It's all made on premises, and it's the usual range of Pennsylvania wineries, from sweet fruit wines, blueberry, blackberry, peach, to sweet wines like Moscato and Riesling, to drier wines like Chardonnay, Merlot, and Cabernet Sauvignon, and Italian-style wines here, Montepulciano, and my friend, the Nebbiolo. I got a glass of Nebbiolo. I, I am a creature of habit sometimes. And I took in the place. There's a short-tasting bar, then tables with a variety of seats, from bar stools to overstuffed armchairs. Put down your phones, play some board games, or just relax and chat. It was actually pretty busy on Friday afternoon for 3 o'clock, and six more people came in as I was leaving. Walk out the door, round the back to the little bridge over the race, and then follow the short alley out to Main Street, and there's the Penns Valley Meat Market. Why am I stopping at a butcher shop on a pub crawl? Well... I picked up a bottle of Nebbiolo to go at Pisano's, and I'm going to need some nibbling to go with it when I get home. The meat market has some basic groceries and a nice selection of locally canned fruits and vegetables and some homemade mustards, but the draw is the meat. Oh, and don't miss the small cooler full of smoked cheese in the front. The Swiss and the black pepper cooper are my favorites. There are fresh cuts of pork, beef, and chicken, and they regularly have tri-tip roasts, delicious when grilled but not easily found in the East, all at very good prices. But if we're nibbling, we're here for the smoked section, which is fully a third of the display coolers. Ring bologna in several different flavors, sweet bologna, and their take on andouille, the Cajun chub. There are several types of Canadian-style bacon, including sirloin bacon, my favorite, all vacuum-packed. They have their own scrapple, bacon, and country ham. The ham is delightfully funky. Then there's the smoked sausage, smoked kielbasa, and big slabs of chewy beef jerky. But the king of the smoke, as far as I'm concerned, is the smoky bits. Thin-sliced smoked beef tenderloin. It's not cheap, but it's incredibly good. The intensity of dried beef, but tender, with just a hint of smoked bark on the outer edges. I got half a pound, along with some smoked sausage and a piece of the black pepper cooper. I also got two small bags of their house-roasted peanuts. I put it all in a bag and headed up the street toward the light. I passed the meandering mallard on the way, our newly reopened coffee shop. They're open from 7 to 3, 7 days a week, with locally roasted coffee, fresh baked goods, and freshly made sandwiches. That's worth a stop, too, if only to relax in the warm, rustic cabin interior. And there might be a fire in the big stone fireplace in back. I'd stopped in at Elk Creek to pick up a crowler to greet the kids when they got in. 
if you're not familiar, a crowler is a big 25 or 32 ounce can of draft beer that the bartender will fill and seal for you right there in front of you. I had to have a glass while I was waiting, of course, and I decided on the old Milheim strong ale. As I was waiting, Tim Bowser greeted me, shaking a plastic bag like mine and calling, I got my bag of meat too! Small towns, man. Everyone knows what's going on. We already did the interview, but let's take a look around. Elk Creek is like a lot of brew pubs of this kind of area, and era, an older space, with plenty of wood. The bar stools are wood and forged iron, solid, in place. The beer menu is a chalkboard. The whole time it's been open, there have been the same four beers, Copper, Blue Heron Pale, Poe Patty Porter, and Brookie Brown. One beer dropped, the Winkleblink, named for the high peak you can see to the east. One added, the Double Rainbow IPA, named for the auspicious sign that appeared the day they first brewed it. Besides those five, there are usually three or four special beers. Right now, Winkleblink has made a return with a new yeast that made it a more interesting beer than it was, at least to me. The old Milheim I got is a 7 plus percent beer with a solid malt backbone. The MFA that's also on is a bit hoppier, and the Crickwalker IPA is a jazzy, very drinkable characterization of the style. Add in PA spirits and wines, some great non-alcoholic drinks made with Tate Farm fruit shrubs, and a menu that's crafted as much as possible with locally grown meat and vegetables, and eggs and cheese and honey, and you still don't have all of it, because Elk Creek has a fantastic live music scene, much better than a town of 900 should have. The next night, we saw a local act, Wicked Chicken, two Milheim brothers who've been winning acclaim and awards with their Appalachian roots music, but who can get the place smoking with blues riffs as well. I finished my beer, stowed my crowler in my cargo pants, and walked up five, no, four doors to the Milheim Hotel. I dropped anchor at the interior angle of the bar and took a look at the taps. I saw a Sierra Nevada tap listed and, well, I told you this from the get-go, I like local beers, but if there's a Sierra Nevada on, there's a good chance I'm going to have at least one. I asked, and the stars aligned, it was the Celebration Ale, a favorite. As I sipped my celebration, I took a look at the rest of the taps, and you know, out of 12 taps, there were seven Pennsylvania beers on. One was Yingling Lager, of course, but there were beers from Otto's, Shy Bear, New Trail, Trogues, Rusty Rail, and Jackass. That's pretty impressive for a small town bar. And the Milheim Hotel is popular with the motorcycle riders of the area, not a crowd known for drinking craft beer, at least not in central Pennsylvania. Hats off, Milheim Hotel. Way to represent. I got a menu and ordered up a plate of fried pierogies. Those were delicious, like mini calzones served with a tasty cup of marinara. As I was finishing the last one, the fellow next to me ordered a shot of Wild Turkey 101. Well, that sounded good at 5 o'clock on a Friday, so I got one as well. Can never go wrong with Wild Turkey. The hotel's whiskey selection? Ah, it wasn't amazing, but it wasn't bad either. I don't know about wine, didn't ask. Sorry, I'll try to keep that in mind from now on. The bar staff was busy, stocking the back bar for a long weekend's Friday night, and the customers were starting their weekends right on time. The hotel has special nights, taco Thursdays, prime rib nights, and we almost did the seafood boil that Friday, but Tom was getting in an hour too late. Speaking of that, I headed up the hill and get dinner started. Nice little pub crawl, and I welcome you to come out and try it out some weekend. Milheim has a lot to offer for its size, and as I said, there's a lot of natural beauty and recreation around as well. 
One thing that always brings people to town is Elk Creek's one annual beer event, the Day of Delicious Darkness. Oh, there's an Oktoberfest and a couple music festivals, but DODD is just about the beer. They stack the taps with only dark beers, eight of them, including barrel-aged porters and imperial stouts from a year or two before, and offer them in flights of four or five-ounce glasses. It's a well-organized event, and there's always a line waiting to get in. The line started half an hour before the doors opened, and people were waving at each other and talking in the line, seeing people they don't see every day. It's very social, because when you get in the cafe, it's all seated service. The beers come to you. So no one's standing in line waiting or taking up space. You're just sitting with friends, old or new, and sipping, comparing, enjoying. With food, too. Maybe the best part? Each beer comes in its own different shaped glass. So you know what the person across from you is drinking when they go, Ooh, that's really good. And you can go, Ooh, let me try that. Ooh, that is really good. Or, I don't know, that's not really hitting me. It's a fun thing. It's a lot of work for the people there, but it's a great fun thing. It's just a well-organized fest. Well, I have to wrap this up. I've still got to get to Burkholders to get groceries, and then I have a meeting of the Summer Festival Committee to go to at Pisano's. Never a dull moment in Milheim. That's the show. Thanks to the Tims for the interview, and thanks to my son Tom for helping with the chili. You can find pictures of most of these places on Instagram at Stag Podcast and on Facebook at Seen Through a Glass, where you'll find pictures and links and ways to contact me. Stag is now available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Please subscribe to get notice of new episodes. And if you like the show, please take a moment and drop a rating or review. Thanks. You can always message me directly on social media to let me know what you liked on an episode, what could be improved, and what Central Pennsylvania drinks and food producers you'd like to hear from. By the way, this episode was produced entirely underwater. The next episode will be about Pennsylvania maple syrup. I have an interview with a producer from Tioga County outside of Wellsboro, and we'll taste some maple products besides syrup, and maybe have some pancakes and sausage. Might have to get out that bottle of tapped from Nomad Distilling again, too. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Lou Bryson on Seen Through a Glass from the smack dab center of the Keystone State.